You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 5th of November 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. The reason why he's done this, to put it bluntly, is that his backside is in the fire because he has these impeachment inquiries lapping around, not at his feet, but above that. And this is typical Trump playbook. In other words, when you're in trouble, you've got to do something to actually deflect attention away from your failings. The US formally informs the United Nations of its intention to withdraw from the Paris Agreement on climate change. My guests, Juliet Foster and Jonathan Fenby, will discuss that and the day's other news, including... Turkey's plan to send captured IS fighters back to their home countries, even those whose citizenships have been revoked. And how Microsoft in Japan managed to boost its employees' productivity by as much as 40% by getting them to work less. Plus, there is, however, one reading by which Macron's comments seem less contradictory. Could the French leader be quietly developing his own brand of nativism? Our affairs editor Christopher Chermack looks at whether Emmanuel Macron has lost his momentum. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined today by Jonathan Fenby, Chairman of China Research and Director at T.S. Lombard, and Juliet Foster, journalist and broadcaster. Let's start with the United States, which has formally informed the United Nations of its intention to withdraw from the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, which America signed alongside 187 other countries in 2015. The announcement triggers a one-year withdrawal process, which will end the day after the U.S. presidential election next year. A few hardened cynics have suggested that the manoeuvre is calculated largely to give President Donald Trump another bone he can throw to arenas full of hooting yokels between now and polls opening. Um, Juliet, I mean, the United States is the United States and so on, but does this make much material difference? Uh, I think it does to a certain extent, because remember, the Americans were important players in this. Yes, it was a French show. They provided the theatre. But um, yes, the the Americans were important. And remember as well that uh, when Donald Trump made his intention very clear, it did provoke fear amongst uh, environmental campaigners, not just in America, but also abroad. And of course, we've had cities and states, local cities and states responding by basically saying, look, we can fill in the gap because we can do things at state level, which are environmentally friendly and which maintain the spirit of uh, Paris. But it's not enough in itself. It needs the collective effort of a superpower. And you, well, you put your finger on the pulse in your introduction. The reason why he's done this, to, to put it bluntly, is that his backside is in the fire because he has these impeachment inquiries lapping around, not at his feet, but above that. And this is typical Trump playbook. In other words, when you're in trouble, You've got to do something to actually deflect attention away from your failings. To a certain extent, he had a good few weeks with the blowback from killing the leader of IS or American special forces killing the leader of IS. But even there, that was, uh, if you like, from his point of view, it was slightly undermined because of the photographs. They were seen as very staged. There was no dignity. There was an element of exaggeration in terms of how the IS leader died. And of course, that was eclipsed by what was happening with these impeachment inquiries, what was happening with uh, the the diplomatic staff in uh, the... American embassy in Ukraine, this direct interference from his butterfingered personal lawyer, Rudolf Giuliani. And, and so it goes. So this is this is a pretty easy one to deliver on because he told the base, look, you know, we're going to get out of this, this agreement. He signed the papers pertaining to this. And it's pretty straightforward. And again, it fits into this narrative that um, 
And we're trying to help American industry, particularly the coal industry. Yes, and of course, the Chinese, they're going to stick with it because isn't climate 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 change a hoax and isn't it part of the, Ameri- the, the Chinese, uh, if you like, narrative to undermine American industry? So, of course, they're going to stick with it. But, um, yeah, in answer to your question, I just think that it's, it's typical Trump. It's, it's going to weaken the environmental movement in the States, but I don't think it's going to undermine the global environmental movement. Um, Jonathan, Juliet raises the point there that one reason why this may not make much material difference is that there is a quite large, substantial and organised uh, movement among American states yeah. and American cities to basically just stick with the Paris Accords anyway. This is the we are still in exactly. movement. Yes. Yeah. Um, so really, might this actually not make much of a difference? Might, I mean, I mean, does everybody get to win here? Does Trump get to say, "I have, you know, yeah, abrog- may- abrogated the climate accord to own the libs," um, but it more or less gets stuck to anyway? Yes, and uh, of course, the, tra- the administration, Pompeo, the Secretary of State, in announcing this today, uh, today, was very anxious to say, "We are cutting emissions all the same, so we're not going to be bound by an international agreement which we." Uh, hold would uh, limit, inhibit uh, American industry and American uh, economic development, but we're still going to move in this direction. So it's not entirely, um, you know, a complete renunciation of uh, every fight against climate change. On the other hand, a lot of the things that the Trump administration has been doing go in exactly the opposite direction. Uh, it must be said on the other side, as you mentioned uh, in the news, uh, French President Emmanuel Macron is in Shanghai at the moment, and he and the Chinese leader Xi Jinping are uh, putting their shoulders very much behind the Paris Accord. It's become the big, big uh, bandwagon for Macron internationally. And the question I think is going to be uh, putting Trump and the, uh, the US aside, if one can, for a moment, how, how much other governments actually take concrete steps, uh, say, in the year to come uh, to uh, implement uh, climate change measures. Yeah, on that thought, uh, Juliet, of Macron and Xi Jinping meeting in China, and they, they do plan to uh, sign or otherwise underline an agreement to affirm the irreversibility of the, of the Paris commitments, in making a gesture like this, even if it is only a gesture that the United States, or at least that President Trump has made, does it risk undermining America's influence generally as as a global player if if the world starts to realise maybe we don't need them quite as much as we used to think we did? Well, if you're very sceptical, you would actually argue that it didn't take America deciding to pull out of the uh, Paris Climate Agreement to actually undermine its position as, as a superpower, as a, as a key player. Because if you look at Mr Trump's foreign policy, again, the critics would argue that he's actually undermined that claim anyway, certainly with his latest moves regarding regarding the Kurds and and, and the, the Turkish authorities. Look, I mean... He has pulled out of this. And yes, um, from, from the point of view of China, it, it's a great marketing opportunity to say that, look, we're stepping into the boots of the United States. But the other interesting thing about this is the word that you mentioned there, Andrew, irreversibility, because if you actually look at the wording of the Paris Agreement, it was structured in such a way that it was easy to get in, but difficult to get out, regardless mm. of whether a country had economic difficulties or, or political turmoil. Now, China is having political turmoil because, yes, you've got the, the, the issue in Hong Kong and into, indeed how the Chinese are going to respond to this, the mainland government, but also as well, clearly, the, the trade wars with the United States, they are impacting on the economy. But yet China has said, look, you know, we're not, we're not going to pull out of this. The other interesting country to watch on this is Brazil. 
because Brazil got hammered because of the forest fires recently and the concerns mm. that it was actually all the, the, the acreage that was lost in the Amazon rainforest, that it was actually harming the environment. And yet Brazil has stayed in. So I guess the worry is whether Trump could set a destructive example if he gets in in 2020. Because remember, that's the thing which could halt this. If you have a different president, okay, who is environmentally friendly, he or indeed she may turn around and say, well, actually, forget about this. We are going to stay in. But on the other hand, if Mr. Trump wins, which he could... Okay, you may find that perhaps it could embolden the likes of Bolsonaro, Jair Bolsonaro, the leader of Brazil, who may well turn around and say, well, actually, I don't really see why I should stick with this. I mean, so far, he hasn't indicated that he wants out, but it could be that he's just simply biding his time. Or again, he doesn't. We're not really sure how the Brazilian public would react if it did actually pull out of this agreement. Uh, Jonathan, possibly the key tension in discussion of limiting industry in the interests of climate is that between the developed and the developing world, because the developing world makes the point not unreasonably that this is easy for you people to say, you've done all your developing, you're already rich, um, and at no no small cost to the environment in which we live. But we are where we are. Um, We were talking yesterday about the fact that New Delhi, for much of this past weekend was practically uninhabitable. Absolutely. This is this is a scenario certainly familiar to residents of Beijing and other big Chinese cities. Is it possible that just those urgencies will mean that from here on the climate fight might start to get led by what we think of as developing countries because they want to carry on living in their cities? I think that's very very probable uh, indeed. And it's in, in a country like China, uh, for instance, where you don't have democracy, but you have the grassroots uh, resentment at the declining quality uh, of the environment, of the air, of the water, of the land. And, uh, pollution, all that and so on. And it is clear from the way that the Communist Party has reacted to this that uh, it certainly takes that very seriously. So, yes, there is a, a possibility of a much broader coalition, if you like, than used to be the case when we did the easy emerging markets, developed markets uh, standoff. Juliet Foster and Jonathan Fenby, we will have more from both of you in just a moment. But first, Monocle's Marcus Hippie has some of the other stories we're following today. Thanks, Andrew. The UK's government is coming under renewed pressure to publish a parliamentary report on alleged Russian meddling in British politics. The report has been cleared for publication by the UK Security Service, but Downing Street doesn't want it to be made public before next month's general election. Thousands of protesters have taken to the streets of Barcelona in protest at a visit by Spain's King Felipe, with some demonstrators even burning pictures of the monarch. The region has been hit by weeks of protests, which began when the Supreme Court in Madrid jailed a number of separatist leaders. And the Monocle Minute reports on the world travel market, which is taking place in London's Royal Victoria Docks. The event is hosting thousands of exhibitors who are selling everything from accommodation to boat rental services. For more, head to monocle.com forward slash minute. Those are the headlines. Now back to you, Andrew.
Thank you, Marcus. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller here with Juliet Foster and Jonathan Fenby. And let's look now at Turkey. A common refrain among right-wing blowhards across the Western world is that fanatics who refuse to conform to local customs should be returned whence they came. It seems unlikely, however, that these people will be delighted by Turkey's plans to do exactly that. Turkey's recent incursion into northern Syria has made it the reluctant custodian of thousands of members of the Foreign Legion of Islamic State who had previously been held by Kurdish militias. Turkey's interior minister, Suleyman Soylu, has announced that Turkey intends to send them back, even those whose citizenships have been revoked. Uh, Jonathan, is Turkey basically within its rights here? Turkey may be within its rights. It'll make sure that it is within its rights, I'm sure, (laughs) with with, with an argument there. But um, this raises so many uh, difficulties. Uh, For instance, if fighters are, ISIS fighters are returned, what what happens to them? How are they tried? It, wh- where is the judicial legal mechanism for dealing with this? Um, and obviously, it's much easier for them to be tried if they are going to be tried in the place where they committed whatever acts they did uh, commit there. And the difficulty of transferring referring that into, say, a British legal system with all the requirements of evidence and so on are clearly absolutely enormous. Uh, Juliet, there is a, well, there are a number of difficulties here, but there is a political difficulty here because to attempt to resolve this conundrum, some politician somewhere is going to have to expend their own political capital doing this. They're going to have to be the politician that Mm. decides we need to figure out how to bring these people back. And I I don't have polling information to hand on how many of, for example, the British public care one way or the other what happens to these people, but I suspect it's a minority interest. Uh, Absolutely. You're totally correct because Jonathan focused brilliantly on on the practicalities. The other thing to throw into this is that it's very difficult to actually ascertain somebody's nationality because remember that when some of these individuals went to the so-called caliphate, One of the first things that they did was destroy their passports or indeed their passports were taken away from them. So there's a question of verification. Also as well, when the Syrian conflict itself started, a a number of countries actually broke off their relations, their diplomatic relations at embassy Mm. level with the Syrian authorities. So you may have had other countries taking on those duties as well. So you've got that practical concern. Don't forget as well that there are people who took their children over to the so-called caliphate territory. So, you know, should a five-year-old or or a child who was five at the time who's now older, should they be treated in the same way as the calculating parent? There were children who were born in the caliphate. So you may have a child who was born to a British mother and a German father, but that child is stateless. So it's very, very complicated. And let me stress something else as well to pick up on your point, Andrew, with the politics. If you're going to bring people back in, you're absolutely correct. We are having a general election in this country. (laughs) And so I doubt very much that either Jeremy Corbyn or the sitting Prime Minister Boris Johnson would actually hold their hands up and say, yes, let's open the gates and allow these people to come here because they're British citizens. And even if you did, you need to have a mental health infrastructure in place Indeed, because you've so. got children who have witnessed things which may have repulsed them at first, but it became second to nature. You didn't really think about the violence. You grew up with it. Okay, some children were blooded on the violence to make them warriors for the front yeah. line. You know, you've got to deprogram 
adults with a very dodgy way of thinking deprogram the children? Is there the money for that? Is there is there the will for that? So it's it's a massive, massive issue. And you're right. I think that a, a number of politicians in in this country would have, it's it's something which they're prepared to stand back from, which means that Brexit and the, the NHS is a stroll through the park in comparison. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. Jonathan, it's, it's obvious enough that if it becomes a convention that citizenship can become conditional, then you can get into a fairly weird area really pretty quickly. But that notwithstanding, have we yet figured out what any state owes one of its citizens who decides to take up arms against it? Is, is a state entitled to say to that person, well, you bought the ticket, take the ride? Uh, the state will say that, uh, certainly, uh, in some cases. But then, then there is the added complication, I'm sorry to add uh, to things here, <laughs> that has that citizen of an established state, by going to uh, an, join an organization like ISIS and say that it is at war with the previous state to which it belonged, is ISIS actually a state? So has it gone to another state or not? Uh, you know, where do, where do you become uh, an, an opponent of your existing state? Uh, to what loyalty um, did you adhere at that point? Um, Julia, do, do we at least assume that Turkey will say that this principle is absolutely fair enough when Syria tries to send back Kurds who have Turkish passports? It might well just say that because to a certain extent it's been emboldened by our friend Mr Trump because he himself said, well, it was worth to the effect of, well, if you don't do something about it, we're going to dump these people on the border and um, you, the Europeans, will have a great time trying to catch them. I think the expression was have fun trying to catch them. Yeah. There is no fun in this. Look, I mean, at the end of the day, Turkey... It's, it's in a very strong position here. And this is, a, this is an issue which it's been brought to the fore because of what is now happening. But it has always been there in the background. Yes, you had these IS fighters and their families who were in these camps which were being guarded by the Kurds. The Kurds are now fighting for their own survival in the territory games. They cannot guard these camps, so people are escaping. There's a very real risk that some of them will regroup and form cells, etc. elsewhere. But the issue has never gone away. This is clarified, and really, Turkey's in the position where it can, it can pull the rug on this and just say, do you know what, you're not really showing any inclination to deal with this. It doesn't matter how much money you give us, you're still dumping your problem on our hands and we can't do this. We have our own issues to deal with. And if you're not going to take the initiative, then maybe we have to force things through. But at the moment, there is politics that is standing in the way of this, geopolitics and domestic politics. And at the same time, Turkey might like to get its hands on Kurds, mm. uh, you know, but who's going to hand them over to Turkey? Exactly. That's, that's the other question. Exactly. Here. Well, finally, on today's news panel, we will look at Japan, which may be inching towards the redundancy of an entire subgenre of popular culture dedicated to looking forward to Friday, though at first glance, <laughs> Thursday, <laughs> well, Thursday on my mind doesn't quite have the same resonance. The results are in on Microsoft's trial in August of a four-day week, and they are quite startling. Meetings were shorter, employees happier, operating expenses lower, and Productivity rocketed by an astonishing 40%. Um, Jonathan, this appears an absolutely open and shut case. Do we perhaps need to adjust for the, the novelty value, that the fact that they were, they were determined to make the most of this opportunity to get their three-day weekend? But 40%, a 40% productivity spike against substantially reduced costs is kind of tough to argue with. It is indeed. You know, this is the thing. And all the, 
uh, evidence. I think there have been similar experiments in New Zealand and other mm. places. And you could even mention the French uh, 35-hour week because French hourly productivity is relatively high. The problem is, you know, for France as a producing nation that people don't work uh, that long. But uh, it seems that more concentrated uh, working weeks, whether four, four days, 35-hour week, whatever it is, and so on, do actually bring uh, considerable benefits. The question, of course, is are people uh, at that point, long term, going to have enough to do during the three day week, three days <laughs> off that they've got, which then becomes four days off as uh, AI and other um, automated uh, mechanisms take the place of people. We're going to have uh, less and less need for people working the old mm. five day week. But and we've got to think, what do they do at the rest of the time? And I think that's a very good point as well, because in Japan, you have a very powerful work culture, the bag man, and you've got the anecdotal stories of people not even bothering to go home, perhaps sleeping in their cars or sleeping at some of these hotels, which are specifically designed for workers yep. who have to commute very long distances. And if that's the mindset that you've been trained into, how do you detach yourself from that if you're on a four-day week? You're going to have to re-educate people to use that time. We talk about the work-life balance. For some people, it's very easy to slip into. But if you're in that culture where you work five or six or seven days a week, you'll suddenly have to have to get people to re-engage with families, with friends, with activities away from that, simple things, interests, hobbies. How do you do that? And you, you create thereby a whole new industry. Exactly. Which is for <laughs> the extra day off and yes. so on. And people probably have to work in that. So you're making the mm. extra day for other people. Yeah, it's, it's just this never-ending this never it, circle. It's a never-ending circle. Yeah. But there's something here, I think, Juliet, which I, I, I will put to you as a, a, a media freelance as well. But there, <laughs> there, there, do, there, does seem to, there does seem to have been an aspect of technology having encouraged more traditional employers to understand what I think freelancers have known for a long time, which is the, the great fraud of presentism, that it doesn't actually matter how long you spend doing something or how long you look like you're spending doing it, as long as it actually gets done. Mm. Do, you, do you think maybe technology is allowing employers to realise that it doesn't necessarily matter if employee X is occupying their chair for eight hours a day? What I, what I care is what comes out of their what comes out of their efforts at the end of it. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and you're, you're absolutely right. This is what, what happens with the freelancers because, you know, I, I'm, contracted to, well, I'm contracted to be here. And, you know, I've done, I've, I've done my reading throughout the week, etc. not because I was preempting what, you were going to t- what we were going to talk about. But, yeah, once, once I've done, that's it. I move on to wherever my next journey takes me. And that is, it, it's fascinating that to a certain extent, this, this kind of plays to that, that, okay, if you give people four days, you work out that they can get so much done within those exactly. four days, yeah. so give them the rest. But for, for, for freelancers like us, we knew that before the technology came in, because that's but, how you're disciplined to work. But we also know as freelancers that the three days off, yes. in inverted commas, can very quickly become three days on. Yes. Writing books, I have uh, looked forward to ah, I've got three days off yeah. so I can get down to really working on this yes. new chapter. and doing the, the research. So time becomes a much more variable, flexible yes. uh, element it in life. It defines definition there. in that sense. But how you organise that in corporate terms and management terms is obviously mm. one of the major questions Absolutely. of our time. And don't forget that we live in we live in a world where we have the so-called gig economy. So if you've, if you've actually got people working in Amazon warehouses, etc., they might not actually want that extra day off because time is money. That's a loss of income. Juliet Foster and Jonathan Fenby, thank you both for joining us. In a moment, Monocle's affairs editor Christopher Chermack looks at whether Emmanuel Macron has lost his momentum. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned. 
You're listening to Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. And finally today, Monocle's affairs editor Christopher Chermak issues a report card on the French president's past performance. Monsieur le président de la Banque Centrale Européenne, cher Mario Draghi. Monsieur le président de la République, cher Serge For a leader who built his soft power brand on uniting Europe, France's Emmanuel Macron has had a mixed few weeks. First, he angered many EU allies by blocking the start of EU accession talks with Albania and North Macedonia potentially destabilizing the latter, which had been on a strong run since settling its long-running name dispute with Greece. Then, in an interview with right-wing French magazine Valeurs Actuelles, he said he preferred legal migrants from Ivory Coast and Guinea to illegal clandestine networks coming from Bulgaria and Ukraine. The latter two countries, Bulgaria, an EU member whose citizens have a right to live and work legally anywhere in the bloc, and Ukraine a membership hopeful whose citizens have been granted visa-free EU travel since 2017. Both promptly called their French ambassadors in for an explanation. The brash comments are jarring since Macron has long sought to be Europe's de facto leader. Bulgarian President Rumen Radev was quick to note the irony, saying Macron will find it hard to achieve EU leadership with such unmeasured comments. There is, however, one reading by which Macron's comments seem less contradictory. Could the French leader be quietly developing his own brand of nativism? The nativist argument runs something like this. A deeper and closer European Union, yes, but only for the EU's most promising and developed, red, Western, members. In some ways, Macron has been making this argument for years by pushing for a, quote, two-speed Europe, where some countries integrate faster than others. Such a stance might also help him at home, where he needs to fend off the looming far-right sentiments of Marine Le Pen and her National Rally Party. But popularity in France comes at a price. Is it worth further dividing Europe to win another election? Thank you, Chris. And that is all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Marcus Hippie and researched by Yolin Goffin and Sam Johannes. Our studio managers were Kenya Scarlett and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of Monocle on Design. Monocle's House View returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening. <laughs>